Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Marcus Pay. Marcus is the Managing Director of Modern Money Financial Services, a financial services business. Marcus, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today. Hello, thank you. It's a real pleasure having you, Marcus. Now, the purpose of this discussion, first and foremost, is to establish your take on leadership. Um, So if we look at that word leader on its own to begin with, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Well, I think think the most important thing for a leader is to inspire the people that he or she is leading. and to look after them uh, to, to the best of their ability. So I have a small staff um, and I have a number of clients who, my staff and clients, a lot of them have been with me over 20 years. And, and I feel that it's, it's about inspiring them, giving them something to, to look forward to, creating a vision for the future that they're interested in and, and motivates them and, and making sure everybody is looked after. And when we think of inspiration, are there any individuals out there that you've perhaps worked with, worked for, or looked up to before going into business for yourself that has maybe had an influence on you? Um, I mean, apart from the obvious, um, you know, Churchill, I've got a number of his quotes around the place, never give in, never give in, never give in. Um, uh, I mean, these days, I'm, I'm most inspired, to be honest, by um, Elon Musk, the leader of um, Tesla and, mm. and SpaceX. I've seen, I watch with uh, avid enthusiasm the recent launch of the Dragon capsule. I mean, that chap made a lot of money, reinvested all of it, made more money, reinvested all of it. And he is really trying to, his objective is to put, put people in living environment on Mars by 2030. I mean, I think that's fantastic. Uh, so, I mean, he, he, he's the one person at the moment that really inspires me in that sense. Aside from that, I've been very, very moved by the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, mm. My daughter is extremely interested in that. And, and that, what I like about that is a kind of devolved leadership. There's not, uh, it doesn't appear to be that there's a huge structure, but people are just standing up, especially young people and getting out there and, and, and getting themselves heard, which I think is wonderful. I think empowering people certainly to have their voices heard and know that they're valued is incredibly important within leadership because encouraging those around you to do just that, it allows them to take on their own form of leadership, doesn't it? To go out of their comfort zone, sort of push the boundaries a little bit and try things for themselves. And that is almost a key learning experience. Without learning, we can't really hope to develop as people, as employees and as leaders, can we? No, I mean, I've, I've, uh, there is always a danger when you're running an operation, especially when you've sunk your, your life savings into it and then your, uh, uh, you know, your work and your effort to, to, to overmanage and to take charge of everything. But I mean, it, it, it clearly, there's nothing that, that you want more as somebody who's managing or, or leading a project than, than people come to you and say, we've got this issue and this issue and this issue, but we've also got these ideas about how to deal with it. And we've started to work on it. What do you think? There's, there's nothing better than that. I find that really exciting. Um, and I have to hold back because there's always this tendency to try and take, take, take charge of things and one of the things I'm trying to teach myself at the moment is to let people get on with it maybe they'll do it in a way that's slightly different to the way I do it but that's uh, 
if I try and overmanage, then you know I'm just going to get sucked into every project. So I would I would agree very much with what you just said. And in that sort of hectic world of running a business, how easy is it actually to just sort of switch off when you need to? Um, I'm very lucky in this regard. Uh, if, uh, if after I've stopped work, I, I don't answer my phone. Um, and I don't look at my emails. So, and that, that's even though I only have one phone number and one email address, I, I, I'm kind of black and white about it. I, I, I believe that if I'm, um, happy in my life and in what I'm doing, that I'll be in the best place to look after clients. I mean, my business is looking after people's finances and that doesn't just mean managing the money. It means managing the client, you know, helping them find out what matters to them, helping them make plans. And I believe that if, if I'm, if I'm, you know, skew with, if I'm out of kilter, then I can't really advise people properly. So, so I, I, I take it quite seriously. If I take time off, I'm off. If I'm in a meeting, I switch my phone off. I, I'm not one of those people who lets it manage me. So, you know, that's not been a particular problem for me. And the reason why I asked that question actually is because the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, which has been a huge test for businesses and organizations alike, of course, has really thrust the issue of mental health and well-being back into the limelight. And that's incredibly important, isn't it, both in terms of leadership and looking after your own mental health in a director role and also looking after that of your colleagues as well? Yeah, it's hugely important. Um, uh, I mean, we have, I've noticed that, um, we are naturally spending perhaps 10 minutes or so at the beginning of Zoom calls with staff, just chatting generally. And, uh, and, and it seems like the right thing to do to get everybody in the room and calm and, you know, hearing what issues they've had, how they're feeling, which is more than one would have done in a normal meeting in an office. But then in an office, obviously, you know, everybody comes in, puts their coat up, says hi and has a chat around the place so i this is sort of you know when we started i think we tried to start meetings too quickly and now it's working much better to have a gentle chat with people Uh, interestingly uh three fifty percent of my staff were already working from home before this started Mm. and now we've got one member of staff in the office and everyone else is working from home and, and a couple of my staff are really enjoying being at home and have asked if they can continue when this is over so so I think that's quite good. I mean, from my own personal point of view, I'm hugely missing face-to-face contact. It's something mm. I really enjoy and I love. And um, and so I can't wait to, to, to get back to to meeting people, you know, have, ha- having a coffee with them or just having a, a lunch and having a chat. I, I, I think an awful lot of... Uh, a lot of our uh, communication and bonding and, and connection is, is physical and nonverbal, which... Uh, you know, on 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 the one hand, uh, you know, is something to recognise, and it's something that's missing when you're just dealing with this horrible two-dimensional flat flat screen of Zoom or or, or, or Microsoft Teams. Mm. And it's important that because we did to a degree, I think, take that sort of human interaction side of things for granted pre-pandemic because we are ultimately social creatures as human beings. And even though we've been able to keep the communication channels open very effectively and we are reviewing our working practices, there may still be a place for the office environment because of the need for that interaction. So it may be two or three years time if we're then in a world where COVID-19 is no longer an issue. Do you think that your office um, at the business will be fully back in vogue or will more and more people be working from home on a personal basis do you think 
Um, well, as I said, half my staff already work from home. We're, we're, we're Although we have an office in Holland Park, uh, one of my staff is in Edinburgh, one is in Somerset, and one of them is in Southern Ireland. Um, and they live there and work there and, and join us, already joined us through Zoom meetings before COVID-19. Um, I, I think quite possibly we'll move from having a fixed office to having perhaps uh, something like one of these workspace environments where we, we have a smaller footprint that's that's permanent and then we, we, we ask for space when we want to do meetings. I, I'm kind of guessing that we will end up in a situation where someone who might have been in the office five days a week is now in the office two days a week, maybe on a Monday and a Wednesday, and then they schedule meetings where they meet people face-to-face. By this, I mean administrators um, and and bond. And then, you know, they can have three days a week when they're at home in their workspace and they can uh, focus on their work. But I think in my place, which is I'm, I'm an advisor, so I need to meet people. I will always need to meet people face-to-face. And our I don't know quite how that's going to factor in. Clearly, one can get quite a bit done where you have a strong existing relationship and you're in a kind of practical working through a project stage of, a, of work. Uh, you can do that on the phone. Like, you know, we're talking on the phone. That's fine. But um, in terms of building a new relationship, new business, connections, commercial connections, anything which is involving new and trust and development of you know, build, building up something new, I, I think it's very important to meet face to face. And just going back um, to near the beginning of the uh, the discussion, we mentioned that word learning and the importance of that in sort of becoming an effective leader. And I think it's fair to say that despite the COVID-19 crisis being a very difficult and a very tragic time, it has been one of the biggest learning curve for businesses, forcing its hand to innovate, be flexible and be adaptable. Um, in your case, of course, it's been quite an easy transition, it seems, of course, with half of the business already working from home. But is there anything that you have learned as a business leader over recent months as you've adapted to this new reality? Yes, uh, definitely. Uh, um, we are, like I said, I, I think it's become overtly obvious to me that personal contact and understanding who your staff are uh, and, and connecting with people personally is, a, is an important um, foundation for, for any kind of business communication or, you know, management communication. And that's become, you know, more overt because of the fact that when you have a, a Zoom meeting, you have to do it in, in a structured way. Whereas, I mean, for instance, we'd have group meetings where there are six or seven of us all on Zoom. And I've said, can everybody spend two minutes just telling us a little bit about what they're, where they're at at the moment, you know, how they're feeling and what's going on. And in one of the early meetings, one of the members of staff burst into tears. Clearly, it got a bit emotional for them. And they were fine about it later. And I think it was quite important. It was a release of emotion. Now, it is possible, hopefully, you think those things would happen in the normal environment. But I think that, that the point about doing everything new at a distance using these new tools that we've we've got is that you have to focus on it and, understand, and be very clear. Make sure you don't miss it out. Um, and then the other thing, so that's with regard to internally managing. And then with regard to treating my clients as a group of people, I, I took the decision uh, on, on March 24th when the lockdown started that, you know, the markets were dropping quickly. Clients' funds were, you know, they shrunk by about 18%. And 
if you see your life savings shrink by, you know, 100, 200,000 pounds, it's quite scary. Um, so I, I decided to do a newsletter once every two weeks. Previously, we'd done really only a commentary, which was quite technical, um, once every three months. So, and, and this, is, this is a combination of what's really going on in, in the market and what's going on with COVID and, and what's the outlook and how you're feeling about it and what's the truth behind all the, the, the different stories they're being fed in the media. Um, and, and I've received very, very positive responses from this. And I've seen it as a, as a kind of way of, of communicating with the clients as a, as a group, uh, you know, which, which, which I found uh, is, is educative. I, I, I didn't think I could do that. And also I didn't, I, I, I have seen the value of communicating with the clients of a group and, and feeding in both factual and, and, advisory information and also feeding in interesting information you know I, I did manage to get a photograph of the the, the 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 capsule launched into space two or three weeks ago which you know was quite amusing to talk and it and it, it stimulates good conversation so I, I think those are the things that I've learned mostly is, is about communication and some of the things that perhaps we as you say yourself we took for granted yeah. we're now having to put in there and I think it's it's going to be hard to ignore that looking forward and based upon the uh, the lessons that you've learned, not just recently, but also in your well over 30 years of working in business, Mark, um, if you had to give some advice to somebody who was maybe about to start their first day within a leadership role within a business, what sort of advice would you give them? I think it's very important to seek advice and to seek advice, not just about the, the mechanics and the practical aspects, but about, you know, who you're being in terms of being a leader. Because I think a lot of what people do, you know, referring back to things like, you may remember the inner game of tennis or the inner game of golf, talking about coaching, a lot of what people do is they copy someone who's good at something. So it's not necessarily a question of what's said, it's a question of how you behave. So I would go out and, and talk to people who you respect and people who know you and people who have been in leadership and find out about it. But when you've done that, put it to the side and ask yourself what it is you want to do. Because ultimately, the, 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 the hardest thing about being a leader is you're at the top of your particular tree and therefore there's no one directly who tells you what to do. So you have mm. to tell yourself what to do. So you've got to be very, very sure about what it is you're trying to do. So take advice, talk to people, and then put that advice to the side and then say to yourself, what do I want to do and how am I going to do it? And, and then get on with it. I think that's incredibly sound advice indeed, because it's so important to understand that even though as leaders at the top of the tree, we're the ones making the decisions, we're not necessarily lone wolves in those decisions. And there are plenty of people that we can still learn from nonetheless. Um, thinking now about the uh, the future, Marcus, before we do wrap things up on the, uh, the program today, um, I'd interested to understand what you envision the next sort of 12 to 18 months holding for yourself and for modern money financial services as you move through into the next stages of the COVID-19 pandemic and start to adjust to the challenges of the new normal. That is a very good question because it's a question that is really on the table now. Um, I, th I think the first three months of this have been very much about survival. You know, we had a number of meetings. I spent time with my finance director and we talked to various people. We have financial arrangements with landlords, insurance companies, lenders and bankers. Um, and, and, you know, we set up a new plan to cover the fact that we expected our revenues to be down 
maybe 15% this year on what we had previously expected. Um, so I think that first three months was a, was a, was about survival. And now we've kind of, things are improving a bit. As you may have noticed, the markets are up a bit. I, I think most people have seen this thing drop very fast, but also perhaps peak quite, uh, the, 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 sorry, peak's the wrong word, uh, the nadir, the base of it has perhaps already back in April. Um, so we're going to come out of it now, and there are going to be winners and losers. Clearly, you know, grocery companies and online companies and others, uh, a number of businesses are going to have done very well out of this and are growing. And in our business, we need to follow those, and you know, because that's what we want our clients to invest in. We're now trying to, uh, I mean, we're trying to to raise some finance. We're trying to, uh, we, we've got some intern we want to move forward with. Um, we want to find training. I'm slightly disappointed the government apprenticeship website is closed at the moment, despite what they keep saying about encouraging learnings at the moment. Um, so really what we want to do now is, is, you know, train our staff, bring in some new people. And it's going to be about funding, you know, because funding, you know, the market is definitely slightly suppressed. And need help from, uh, you know, local authorities, government bodies, discretionary grant bodies. We're going to need to find ways of joint funding so that we can get out there and train. There's, there's plenty that people want, but we need help to do that. And uh, that's that's really what my current focus is going to be finding that support um, for us as a small business, because uh, we don't have massive reserves, which, which, which bigger companies might have so that we can uh, train. We're quite keen to take people on and bring people forward, but we can't fully fund it ourselves. We'll need some kind of support. Seems like there's plenty to do um, once some things start re- returning to normal for sure, Marcus. Um, but given how informative it's been uh, today, just having you on the uh, the programme to discuss some of these issues, I think it would be fantastic, perhaps uh, from a listener's perspective, to catch up in the future and have you back on just to see how those plans are starting to come to fruition and also assess and reflect on what exactly has changed in the time between as well. That would be fantastic. It's, it's, it's been very enjoyable listening to you. Apart from you mentioning I've been in the business 30 years, I think we should cut that out. <laughs> oh dear I, I, I certainly do apologize uh, for that Marcus um, didn't mean to cause any offense with that uh, but yeah of course um, it's, um, it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, sort of business career that uh, you've had there very long one at, um, at that and uh, some fantastic experience that's um, also been uh, radiated to the listeners that are tuning into uh, to this as well um, it's been a real pleasure from my point of view uh, Marcus listening in uh, to um, you discussing some of these uh, contemporary issues and until we do touch base again in future I'm sure which is a real certainty I hope do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because there are still many variables and things can still go one way or the other with the COVID-19 situation. So let's hope it continues to head in the right way. Thank you very much. That was Marcus Payne speaking, Managing Director of Modern Money Financial Services. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett actually rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords in August of 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. 
Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able Mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. 
and of course um, ensuring because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself and there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's severe illness but all the way through the public and private sector people have to use the jargon stepped up and they've shown uh, local regional national level the kind of leadership that britain historically was very good at regrettably we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons uh, but maybe we will in future so i think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods uh, including for instance shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system um, the food chain and the like uh, but also i think in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly 
different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated 
their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would. people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized uh, 
technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. 
and therefore we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. 
and I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince skeptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially 
in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blanket. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.